the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 12. I make the soul beautiful. The reign of Sahure was a spectacular one, filled with great achievements that make the ruler stand out from the long litany of pyramid builders we've met thus far. His expedition to Punt was an act of great celebration, and his royal fleet immortalized him as a king of unusual splendor in life. From the royal court of Memphis, Sahure could look out over a domain that was wealthy, stable, and peaceful. His campaigns to Libya and the Sinai are attested only briefly, but they tell us that he made an effort to ensure the stability of Egypt's borders and protect it from nomadic incursions. The expedition to Punt had brought back exotic goods and luxuries, and enhanced the material splendor of the royal court and household. Increasing the visible wealth of the family, paid powerful dividends in the actual power the king wielded, and Sahure's legacy in Egyptian annals is particularly splendid among the rulers of late Dynasty IV and early Dynasty V. His pyramid complex at Abu Sir was used as a template for the rest of the dynasty, with many kings attempting to imitate its form and design to the letter. Because the Fifth Dynasty is the last era where pyramids are still splendid monuments, unlike the declining standards which follow, this makes Sahure's pyramid complex essentially the perfected form of a royal monumental structure. For the rest of the dynasty, the rulers would imitate but never surpass the work built during his reign. Following Dynasty V, the efforts to match Sahure's complex in elegance will become weaker and weaker, eventually bringing pyramid building into the state of a habit rather than an enterprise of great prestige. But this was all in the future, and Sahure's reign should be considered as one of the peaks of Old Kingdom culture. His royal fleet was immortalized in the causeway of his pyramid, and the king's daily life was recorded in sumptuous detail upon the walls. Thanks to the well-preserved images of Sahure's court, his family, and his lifestyle, the pageantry surrounding the divine family is more visible than ever before. As historians, the only real question facing us is how far can we take the interpretation of these scenes, and how much should we assume they reflect the realities of Egyptian royal life? In Sahure's case, it is possible to make a fairly compelling case for suggesting that the scenes in his causeway are reflective of both the daily life of his family, and more importantly, the trends and changes underlying Egyptian royal society at the time. Scenes, monuments, and inscriptions rendered before Sahure always emphasized the rituals undertaken in the courts and temples. In other words, earlier scenes are dominated by images of offering and worship, with proper veneration being made to the king and his divine father, Ray. The world of the king's pyramid had remained a tightly bound area subject to rules concerning the subject matter of its art. By contrast, the tombs of officials and nobles had shown aspects of their daily life, including their estates and the responsibilities they wielded in government. Over time, especially in the later 5th dynasty, these nobles' tombs would become vibrant examples of an elite culture with philosophies and principles that emerged into literary forms and ideals. Sahure ignored many of the conventions which traditionally bound a pyramid complex's artistic images, and had himself represented as he ruled. 
The royal fleet and expedition to Punt emphasised his achievements in life, while scenes of hunting and fishing with his family brought the royalty themselves into the spotlight. Why did he do this? Was he simply an individualist? A rebel? Or was something going on in the Egyptian mindset that allowed a royal pyramid complex to become less focused on worship and ritual, and allow a more free and open style of artistic representation? The answer is yes, and the culprit is Sahure's father, Usurkaf. You see, when Sahure's great father ordered the construction of the first sun temple just north of Saqqara, he kick-started a serious shift in the way that the Egyptians looked at royal worship. Not in the basic fundamentals, the world was still perceived as the creation of Atum Re, who presided over creation and sailed across the sky in his divine boat, but the manner in which the king sponsored these rituals, and the myths, was fundamentally altered by the introduction of the sun temples. As I've said in previous episodes, the sun temple acted as a conduit for worship of Re, much like the Sphinx temple built by Khafre at Giza. However, while the earlier temple had been dedicated to the sun in its glory, and as Khafre as an embodiment of that, Usurkaf's sun temple connected the worship of Re with the eternal concept of kingship itself. This created a division between the pyramid complex and the sun temple. The pyramid was now dedicated more completely to the soul of the king himself, while the sun temple acted as the conduit for worship of kingship as an eternal office, mandated by the solar god Ray. The two temples complemented each other, while serving slightly different purposes, all towards the same general goal, which was the preservation of Ma'at, the cosmic order. Sahure's pyramid could now feature a greater emphasis on his daily achievements, his acts in life, for recognition of these gave honour and prestige to his soul. Meanwhile, the priests of the Sun Temple could ensure the lineage of kings continued with Ray's blessing, and protect creation from the forces of chaos. Scenes of daily life and the achievements of the king emphasised the authority and splendour of the ruler, without diverting too much energy into obeisance before the god. Worship could now be represented and enacted at the Sun Temple as well, without taking attention away from Sahure in the halls of his own pyramid. So, to sum that up, the Sun Temple's focus on Rei and kingship as an eternal concept, while the pyramid connects less explicitly with Rei and dedicates its attention to the living king, ensuring the stability, safety and sustenance of his soul as it united with Ray in the heavens, and perpetuated the life cycle of the earth. Rather than assume that the priesthood demanded a sun temple, or that social pressure mandated such an institution, let's look at it from another perspective. The priesthood of Ray is barely visible as an organisation before the 5th dynasty, and only becomes generally visible during this period, precisely as a result of the sun temple's construction and operation. The king chose to commission these temples, and to staff them with priests who were paid from his own resources. The king remained in control of this entire process, so there must have been a reason for doing this, one that is not satisfactorily explained, 
by the suggestion that a priesthood, with no prior wealth, visible power, or strong social impact, somehow managed to barge into the royal sphere and begin threatening the status quo. By commissioning the sun temples, King Usarkaf had essentially invited the priesthood of Rey to take a greater share in the maintenance and execution of divine authority. And that which you invite in, you maintain control over. The sun temples are manifestations of the Egyptian king's desire to co-opt the cult of Rey for their own ideological ends. The royal line of the fourth dynasty had nearly been extinguished, and it was only averted by the timely intervention of Kentikaus, daughter of Kafre, who was able to revive the male line through her sons Shepseskaf and Userkaf. Had the royal line died out, it could have had serious implications for the Egyptian concept of kingship as it stood during this period. I don't think we stress enough that by the time of Kentikaus, it had been a long, long time since anyone of a different family had ruled Egypt. Most Egyptians probably could not have conceived of anyone but a member of Sneferu's family being in power, and they probably thought this family would always rule Egypt. Well, that had almost come crashing down, and it was only the appearance of a royal woman able to restore the lineage that a crisis had been averted. It is no coincidence that the cult of Rey is raised in its prominence during this period. The favour of the gods was mandatory if the family was to continue ruling, and Rey's support, above all, was crucial to the preservation of their power. Usirkaf's sun temple took the idea of Kafre and twisted it to a state more amenable to a king's purposes. By placing the sun temple at a comfortable distance from his pyramid, he could ensure an appropriate divide was maintained between the sustenance of his soul and the proper rituals made for the sun god. At the same time, he ensured that worship of Rey was housed within a royal-funded institution, and the proper control could be wielded over the priesthood to ensure that divine favour was always in ready supply. Usarkaf and his son Sahure were playing for the survival and perpetuation of their family's rule. But to maintain that status quo, they had to innovate. It seems a bit contradictory, but the Egyptians were good at that. To preserve their own authority, they had to invite new partners into the equation, but by skillfully incorporating the worship of Rey into a new type of temple, which they controlled, they had a tighter grip on the ideological foundations of the state than ever before. As a side note, this is reflected not just in the sun temples themselves, but in the manner of their organisation and functioning. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, most of the priestly roles were filled on a part-time basis. That is, each group of priests served for about one month out of the year, and the other months were filled by the other files and divisions of priests available as a workforce. What this meant was that the priestly roles were very numerous, and jobs that are numerous are less valuable and prestigious than jobs which are scarce. In other words, if the temple had been served by full-time priests, each temple would only need about 10 or 20 people. But when the temples were filled with part-time roles, the number of priests ballooned to about 300 per temple, 
Would you rather be one of just 30 priests or one of 300? Exactly. This division of the priesthood among a multitude also meant no individual person or family could benefit too greatly from the offerings they received in the temples. After the goods were offered to the deities, they were shared among the personnel of the temple, waste not, want not, and those of greater rank received the bigger share. Because there were so many priests, no individual became massively wealthy as a result of their service, and the offerings were dispersed among too many people for the priesthood to really concentrate its wealth. In later eras, we will see political positions and priesthoods begin to calcify or become more rigidly dominated by single families. When this happens, a serious threat to royal sovereignty will develop, but for now, during the reign of Sahure and his 5th dynasty contemporaries, everything remained in the hands and control of the king. This was the paradigm which Sahure passed on to his son when he died. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. Nefer-ir-Kare Kakai, the new king, wasted no time. He fulfilled his duties as a pious son, and completed the burial arrangements for his father, making sure that in certain scenes within the pyramid causeway, his name was enclosed in a cartouche to reflect his new status. Nefer-ir-Kare Kakai, which means, he makes the soul of Ray beautiful, my soul is doubled, was the second king in a row to bear the name of Ray as part of his own. His two ruling sons, and his grandson, would continue this trend, making the fifth dynasty a period in which Ray dominates the panoply and iconography of the king. Like the sun temples as a funerary institution, this form of naming wrapped the king in an aura of piety, and presented him as a man greatly favoured and supported by the supreme deity. Beyond this lip service to Ray, Nefer-ir-Kare Kakai was all about the vintage ideals and symbols as the foundation of his public image. Near to his father's tomb, he ordered the establishment of a pyramid, which would be in the traditional form of a step pyramid. By doing this, he would evoke connections with his illustrious ancestor Netjerikat Djoser, and ensure his own legitimacy was incontestable. The division between solar worship at the Sun Temple and the worship of the king's soul at the pyramid was further solidified when the king decided to name his tomb Ba Nefer-Irkare, or the soul of Nefer-Irkare. The pyramid 
was now a total embodiment of this concept, and the king's sun temple, Set Ibre, or the seat of Ray's heart, was but a complementary factor to this. Complementing his image as a traditional king, of traditional means, Nefe'ekare Kakai's wife took the name of the 5th dynasty's great female founder, Kentikaus. The new Kentikaus, whom we know as Kentikaus II, would outlive her illustrious husband, and shepherd at least two of their sons onto the throne, gaining a legacy that would ensure she was buried with full honours. We will meet her more fully next episode, when she governed Egypt as queen regent of her son Nyusare, Nefe'ekare's second successor. She was a potent force in Egyptian politics of the time, much like her earlier namesake, whom we met in episode 9. Nefe'ekare Kakai ruled for approximately 10 years, which was recorded on a royal annal which was created around this time. The earliest extant record of its era, now known as the Palermo Stone, because it is kept in Palermo, Sicily, it documents the reigns of every ruler from Dynasty 1 to 5, and many prehistorical rulers who are now assumed to be mythical kings, predating the unification and the ascendancy of Horus over Egypt. The sort of events listed in the Palermo Stone are those which the ancients considered to be significant events within each king's reign. The text is on a large black basalt slab, divided into horizontal registers, with each king's name recorded in a small rectangular section. Each ruler is attested to have performed deeds like the biannual cattle census, or tax collection, the establishment of noteworthy buildings, and campaigns against enemy peoples. One of the most interesting aspects of the information which is recorded on the Palermo stone is the record of the Nile flooding during each king's reign. For the Egyptian rulers, the agricultural foundations of the state made the economy and authority of the royal family totally reliant on the regularity of the flood and the nourishment it provided to the fields. So in this respect, the Palermo stone seems to be a record concerned as much with understanding the periods in which the god Kanum, who resided at the source of the Nile, favoured Egypt and upheld the stability of the land. By recording in great detail the acts of each king, and the level of the inundation during his reign, an observant ruler could look back to the periods when the inundation was low, and avoid any perceived mistakes the earlier king could have made. Of course, the vagaries of the climate have little to do with Egypt's primeval deities, and it is difficult to determine if any kings realised that nature did not seem to reflect the actions of the ancestors in any obvious way. Of course, it is always possible to rationalise the past, and make it conform to one's pre-existing beliefs, so we can only assume they found a way to justify the discrepancy. Combined with the construction of a step pyramid for his tomb, the Palermo stone strikes us as a document suggesting that Nefe'ekare Kakai, and the early 5th dynasty more generally, was extremely interested in solidifying the royal family's authority in a truly impenetrable bubble of tradition and legitimacy. Looking back to the 3rd dynasty, but taking some ideas from the 4th, this family played by a set of rules that were at once innovative and 
on the other hand, totally cloaked in traditional ideas. By co-opting the cult of Rei to their own ends in the Sun Temple, the family secured ideological power above and beyond their role as the incarnation of divine personalities like Horus and Hathor. By utilizing the power of women to continue and perpetuate a dynasty, this family secured a new paradigm in which the royal mothers incarnated Hathor on earth and acted as legitimate power players within the Egyptian social system. These were innovative policies, yet totally consistent with the myths and rituals of the 3rd and 4th dynasties. Nevertheless, the early 5th dynasty walked a tenuous path, amidst times of significant change. It was not a storm, but it had the potential to be one if navigated poorly, and the manner in which the royal family dealt with these changes at work in their state is one of the most fascinating aspects of their rule. Nefer-Irkare Kakai's father had been a high watermark in the family's recent history, and the danger of being overshadowed by his achievements must have weighed on his son's mind. It is perhaps unsurprising then that in Kakai's reign, we see increasing evidence for the Egyptians maintaining a military and trading presence in Nubia. Mud ceilings bearing the name of the king have been found at Buhen, and the trading expedition to Punt in Sahure's reign tell us that these rulers took a much greater interest in the southern lands than ever before. Nefer-Irkare Kakai's reign can probably be characterized as one in which foreign relations and materials were more visible in Egypt than at any time previously. Managing this influx of goods required a great deal of administrative capability, and it is probably to his credit that the royal family managed to not only utilize the wealth to great effect, but also maintain a fairly high degree of control over its use. But the king could afford to occasionally show a sense of generosity. Nefer-Irkare exhibited such when he excused a temple from any obligation to the state in terms of providing laborers and resources as tax. It was largesse, and did not have any immediate ramifications, but it was a serious miscalculation in his policy, for it opened the door to a long series of similar exemptions perpetuated by later kings. In time, this would undermine the wealth and economic foundations of the royal family, and totally decentralize the Egyptian kingdom. Nefer-Irkare did not know this at the time, and probably went to his grave with a clean conscience. Indeed, he was remembered in Egyptian tradition as a benevolent and admirable ruler, whose ten-year reign was an era worthy of remembrance and emulation. The funerary cult he established at Abu Sir thrived for the better part of a century, and a later ruler in the Middle Kingdom would go out of his way to fulfill Nefer-Irkare's memory by taking on the same name for himself. Like all good kings, Nefer-Irkare's life came to an end sooner rather than later, and he died around his early thirties after a ten-year reign. He was succeeded by his eldest son, Ra-Nefer, who took the name Ra-Nefer-Ef at his extension. Ra-Nefer-Ef, meaning Ray is beautiful, was the third king in a row to utilize the name of the sun god in his name. Their lip service to Ray, so to speak, complemented the building of sun temples to wrap the ruler in the aforementioned aura of pious service. But again, 
it was an ideological paradigm which remained totally within the king's control. Ra-Neferef was a short-lived ruler, and apart from the beginnings of a pyramid at Abu Sir near that of his father, he left very little significant legacy. Quite by chance, however, some of Ra-Neferef's earthly remains survived in his very basic and incomplete tomb, and are the earliest remains of an Egyptian king that have been securely identified. Human remains were found in the pyramid of Ra-Neferef during excavations by teams from the Czech Republic. Forensic examination dated them to the period of the 5th dynasty, and confirmed that they came from an Egyptian male aged approximately 23 at his death. The context, age, period, and the goods around the body are all consistent with the burial of Ra-Neferef, and it is now generally accepted that the king died at age 23, after about a two-year reign. Subsequently, he was buried in his tomb at Abu Sir by his younger brother, Niusere. Between the two kings was a very short, possibly even fictional, ruler named Shepseskare. His name appears in royal king lists, but no evidence for the man has been found in documentary or archaeological contexts, suggesting that his reign was no more than a few months at most. Niusere, however, is much better known. He came to the throne as a boy, probably in his early teenage years. He was too young to rule effectively on his own merit, so the governance of the realm was guided by the royal mother Kentikaus II. Like her earlier namesake, Kentikaus II was a woman of great authority and prestige, whose influence within the royal family never translated to a formal kingship, but had all the hallmarks of power equal to that of a king. The next episode will be the story of Neusere's reign, but it will form the first of a two-part discussion of this particular period. Though his reign was long, stable, and prosperous, Neusere's rule is the point from which a great deal of evidence comes to light concerning the nobility, who were gaining economic and social power at a rapid pace. The social fabric of Egypt was changing, and the royal family was forced to innovate even further if they were to retain their position at the centre of Egyptian society. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. If you would like to support the show directly and help me pay for research materials and food, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to special perks like early episode releases, supplementary notes and photo materials, early or exclusive access to YouTube videos, and an ad-free experience. For as little as five US dollars per month, you can enjoy the special edition of the podcast. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description, or go to patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening. May the great gods 
bless your week. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.